Good morning. You're so welcome. If you're a guest or a visitor, if this is your first time among us, we hope and pray you feel at ease and at home among us. If you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are currently studying the book of Nehemiah together as a community. Um, I don't know any of you maybe are into biography or autobiography. It's my favorite genre of literature. Um, it's one thing to read someone's commentary on a world event or a life, but it's a whole other thing to read someone's own reflections of the things that they've lived through or done. And that is literally what we find in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. It's an ancient memoir. It's a journal. It's Nehemiah's reflections on his own life and what God did through him. I find this uh, absolutely and utterly fascinating. Here in this community, we believe that Jesus is alive. We believe that God is active in the world, that we don't worship an idea or a doctrine, but that we follow a person who is ruling the world, and his name is Jesus. And we believe that his story is unfolding all around us in the everyday, ordinary moments and corners of our lives. We, we believe that this thing is not for the religious elite or those whose lives are cleaned up enough to feel like they belong in a gathering like this. We believe that God is actually alive and reaching into every corner of our culture and every part of our society. And we believe that that works itself out as we, the people of God, embody that mission. That actually it is impossible to separate the mission of God from the people of God. That how God's life extends itself to the world is by us, ordinary, jacked up, busted, trying to figure it out people, join in. As we take the good news of Jesus to the people around us. And this series is our best effort at answering, answering the question, how? It's our best attempt at kind of helping us together go, okay, cool, that sounds vaguely interesting, but what, quite literally, on earth does it look like? What does it require? How do we actually participate and join in? This is what uh, this study in the book of Nehemiah is all about. And just in case you haven't been with us, uh, what I want to do this morning is give us a really quick uh, recap of the first three chapters of Nehemiah and then land in chapter four that we read this morning. So um, you might want to, if you've got like a make-believe seatbelt sitting beside you, fasten it. Um, we're going to do three chapters in 30 seconds. Here we go. So um, people of God live in Jerusalem and Israel. They make a whole pile of mistakes and a foreign empire comes and ransacks the city and takes all the people that live there into slavery and they're exiled. There's a few people left behind, but basically the whole community becomes slaves to a foreign empire. There's this guy called Nehemiah who's a slave to the king. And he's actually a cupbearer to the king. And his brother arrives who managed to escape the exile. And his brother arrives from Jerusalem to this foreign kingdom. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah finds his brother. Any of you remember what the brother's name is? He's from Dramar, remember? Hakaliah. Sounds better if you say bye at the end. Hakaliah, my... Um, so Hakaliah arrives, and uh, he's not actually from Dramara. Some of you are like, "There's Dramara was in the Bible? No, it's not. 
it wasn't. Uh, Hakali arrives and Nehemiah finds his brother and says, how are things at home? And Hakali begins to share about how the walls of the city have literally crumbled down. The gates have been consumed by fire. And as Nehemiah hears about the state of his home, he begins to weep and he cries literally for days. It says for days he mourns and he prays and he fasts. And then I think it's about verse 5 in chapter 1, you get this prayer, this, this confession that sort of flows out of Nehemiah's lips as he declares the goodness and greatness of God and then he repents for the part that he's played and, and his family has played and the nation's played and messing things up and then he responds. And if we're asking the question, how do we get involved in what Jesus is doing around the world? The first thing we need to see and notice in Nehemiah is the simple question, what's going on over there, literally opens the door to his entire destiny. Questions have that kind of power. I don't know if you realized. You could literally be one question away from discovering the rest of your life. Nehemiah asks a simple question, hey, what's happening over there? And all of heaven is unleashed upon him. Most of us, maybe just me, spend most of the time asking questions about ourselves. Nehemiah's journey begins with a question about what's happening over there. I wonder when was the last time you asked a question about something that wasn't internal to you? What's going on in our world? What's going on in someone else's life? What's going on in our city? What's going on in your school? I wonder what would happen if you kind of came up for air from the self-reflection, idolization, obsession, too close, that infects our culture and began to ask questions about things outside of yourself. That's what Nehemiah does. What's happening over there? And then his heart gets broken for the state of his city. God literally breaks his heart. We don't really find out much about what was going on in that conversation, but I'm convinced it was in those moments Nehemiah began to realize that God was commissioning him, wanting to send him back to rebuild the walls. Remember, he's a slave. And then he moves to this great confession about how awesome God is. You see, whenever God begins to speak to you about things, uh, usually... Something else happens simultaneously. You get terrified. Usually you get a little bit overwhelmed. Really, God, you want me to do that? And so Nehemiah reminds himself that God is amazing and can do anything. This journey begins as we ask a question outside of ourselves. We declare how awesome God is. And then Nehemiah has this beautiful moment of repentance. Where he says, God, I'm so sorry that I've been part of the problem. I'm so sorry where my family has been part of the problem. I'm so sorry where my whole community has been part of the problem. He moves from a question to confession to repentance. And then he responds. And there's this mad thing happens in chapter 2. Nehemiah is a slave. He works for the king. His job is to bring him wine, probably taste it before he gives it to the king to make sure that it's not poisoned. And he goes to the king and he's really sad. Because his city's in ruins. That might seem like a minor detail to you, but if you don't understand the context of the day, slaves aren't allowed to be sad. Slaves aren't allowed to show up and be like, you know what, I'd really rather be somewhere else. You get your head lopped off for that kind of crack. And the king notices that he's sad. And he says, hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you sad? You're obviously not sick. What's going on? 
And Nehemiah responds and says, how could I not be sad? My city is in ruins. And the king looks back to him and says something that I think is quite incredible. He says, what do you want? What do you want? You see, Nehemiah, in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's been a process of months. He's been in this waiting stage, probably crying his eyes out, praying like mad, trying to figure out how God is going to send him out of slavery to rebuild the walls of his city. And the king says, what do you want? And he says, I want to go home and I want to rebuild the walls. If we're going to learn how to step into the story of God in our city, you need to understand that waiting is part of the process because it's in the waiting that the calling gets distilled and clarified. It's in the waiting that formation happens. And so when the king asks him after the waiting, what do you want? He says, I want to go home and I want to rebuild the walls. I wonder for how many of you, if Jesus appeared in front of you right now and said, hey, what do you want? Would you have an answer? I wonder how many of us would go, "Uh, I'm not sure. I never expected the question. It's important that we have an ability to articulate the answer to that question. God longs to form us in such a way that he can bless our desires. That whenever he says, hey, what do you want? All of heaven can say amen to that. And so when the king says, I want to, what do you want? And Nehemiah says, I want to go home and I want to rebuild the city. The king says, okay, how much time do you want? And then Nehemiah obviously tells him how much time and says, oh, and by the way, will you pay for it? Will you give me letters and an army and wood and all sorts of stuff so I can actually do this? You see, it's funny, whenever God gets our heart for something and then we're in this kind of waiting place, usually what we can see is obstacles. We see our deficiency in talent or qualification or resource. We see our deficiency in opportunity. Well, like I'm really passionate about this thing, but like nobody wants me to do it. I'm not getting any opportunities to do it. I need someone to come and ask me to do it. And I guess until such a time, I'll just wait. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to convince himself that he's a slave in a foreign king's court and he needs God to send some sort of angelic army to set him free so that he can then go and rebuild the walls. But that's not what happens. He goes in front of the king. The king says, what do you want? He says, I want you to set me free and send me over there to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah sees obstacles as invitations. What would happen if the obstacles that are in front of you right now weren't intimidating you, but were inviting you? What if rather than sitting down and thinking, well, God, you've got to deal with that thing, and then I'll get on board, you actually, what if I just move towards it and see what happens? And Nehemiah moves towards this obstacle which is his slavery and the king risking his actual head. And the king says, okay, how much time do you need? And then, after he gets permission, he says, oh, one more thing. Will you pay for this for me? It's totally nuts. It's crazy. Nehemiah knew that when it came to his destiny, when the moment arrived, he needed to ask for it all. Not to shrink it down into something that he could cope with or manage. Any of you excited about Bill Wolseley building a hotel in Lisburn? Just me? (laughs) This is cool, right? That's really exciting. It's not enough. 
It's not enough. It's really, really important that we learn to see correctly. Sure, it's brilliant. And I'm sure it'll be incredible for the square. Davy from the Glass House was in the 945 this morning. I started talking about it. I'm sure he wanted to jump out of his chair. But it's not enough. Four million pounds and a new hotel isn't going to touch domestic violence in our city. You know that, right? We need to learn to ask for it all. Nehemiah models that beautifully. And then Stu last week moved into chapter 3. Chapter 3 in Nehemiah is this really weird chapter. It's one of those chapters that if you spend any time reading the Bible, you'd probably skip. It's basically a list of a bunch of people. And there was this guy who was next to this guy. Who was next to this guy. And then there was another guy, and him and another guy were beside another guy. And another guy and another guy with a few other guys were beside another guy. And on it goes. It's like, what is this about? Here's the point. You can't do it on your own. It is impossible for us to live into the story of God around us, to embody the mission of God on earth on our own. It's impossible. And all of your impulse to make it all about Jesus and me will not get you very far. We need to embrace the truth that we need each other. That we need other people to walk with us, to journey with us, to stand with us, to be beside us. We need to learn how to each take up our place in the wall beside each other. Not separate, but united together in our own part of the rebuilding process. Three chapters and slightly longer than 30 seconds. But So we get to chapter 4. This great work has now begun. They're at the wall. They're busy together. It is happening. I wonder what that must have been like for Nehemiah. Getting his breakfast and walking out, remembering how far he's come. He was a slave in a foreign king's court. He's now the governor of Jerusalem, overseeing the rebuilding of the walls. And he walks out one morning and... Everybody is busy at their work and the walls are being rebuilt. That must have been amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen a dream or an idea or something that you longed for come alive around you. Like it's the most amazing thing. And then the inevitable happens. Verse 1 of chapter 4. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. Sambalat's a bad guy, in case you were wondering. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associate and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Chapter 4, Nehemiah bumps headfirst into opposition. Here's what we need to understand as a community. If we are serious, if we are serious about embodying the mission of God on earth, opposition is inevitable. 
opposition is inevitable. I want you to just let that sit on you for a second. Opposition is inevitable. How many of you love opposition? Jesus like me. Pray for us. <laughs> I don't know a single person in the world that loves opposition. I love a good challenge. I'll be honest. I love a good challenge. I hate opposition. I hate criticism. I hate whenever I bump into quite honestly lies about our community. They make their way back to me in all sorts of different ways. People think all sorts of stuff, say all sorts of things. <laughs> you know that there was a rumor once that we spent £75,000 on chairs. They literally were talking about that out there. You hear about that vineyard church? Spent seventy five grand on chairs. <laughs> I hate opposition. I hate it. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And you need to make peace with that if you want to get serious about following Jesus. It is inevitable. But it's not just any kind of opposition. I want you to notice something here in verse 2. This is Sambalat talking. It says, And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said. Usually when it comes to opposition to the things of God, I don't know, I guess it's a bit of a spiritual dynamic in this. Very rarely does opposition come from people and places that are easy to ignore. Usually they come from people or uh, things that hold power and influence. The opposition comes from somebody who's surrounded by an army. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Like if your opposition was coming from the six-year-old next door, you maybe wouldn't be too worried. But the fact that it's maybe your boss and all of the important people in your work, it seems much more intimidating. The opposition comes from a guy who's literally surrounded by an army. One that had way more seeming power than Nehemiah had. It happens to us all the time. It seems to be the people in places that have way more than we have that oppose us. Why? Because that's how we get intimidated. And intimidation is one of the enemy of God's chief strategies. If I can just intimidate you, of course. And this army begins to rumor about Nehemiah and ridicule and patronize. Just listen to the language. What are those feeble Jews doing? You ever had somebody in a position of power or authority say something really negative about you? And you're almost like, of course I must be that because your life looks way better than mine. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? The people around Nehemiah, if they were trying to answer that question, would want to scream, no, probably not. We have none of what we need to see this happen. We're a bunch of feeble people who 
are trying to just survive. You ever felt like that? Like you're just trying to, you're just trying to make life work. Trying to get through a week without a crisis. Trying to get through some stuff in your family without people falling apart. Just trying to hold things together. And then God asks you to do something incredible. And then you start to move towards it. And then rumors and opposition begins to come. And usually from people or places that look like things are way more together. And you have every excuse in the world to go, do you know what? Yeah, you're right. I probably can't even do this. I don't know why I even thought I would try. That's the assignment. Opposition is inevitable. Don't be surprised when lies come into your mind. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Lagan Valley Vineyard, thinking that you could even attempt to see domestic violence end in the city? Who do you think you are, Lagan Valley Vineyard, that you would dare to even dream that every single man, woman, and child in this entire region could come into a relationship with Jesus? That's ridiculous. Opposition is inevitable. And it always, always seeks to intimidate you out of your assignment. I love verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. (laughs) Nehemiah is having a bad day. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back in their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Look at this. First part of verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. So we rebuilt the wall. Here's what you need to know about opposition. It's inevitable. Don't make it the assignment. Don't make opposition the assignment how many of you have done this i have been very guilty of this in the past someone criticizes you someone says something negative about you and whatever you were doing becomes i'm going to prove them wrong i'm going to show them i'm going to show that guy that whatever he said was absolute nonsense and no matter what i do he's going to be wrong how many of us in this moment with an army looming outside the city, whispering threats, sneaking in rumors, trying to intimidate. How many of you, this would have been my strategy? Right, lads, let's go. Pick up your trials. We're going to have a fight. That's just me, right? I would have gathered anybody and everyone I could and went, God is obviously with us. I was a slave, remember? Let's go and kick some ass. That would have been my strategy. Not Nehemiah. He does not let the opposition become the assignment. He stays focused in the presence of opposition on what God has asked him to do, which is rebuild the wall. They rebuild the wall. Whenever opposition comes into your life, do not make it your assignment. Don't make it your assignment. I want to tell you about one of the people in our community that I'm most proud to call my friend. David Hungford and his wife Elaine were at the uh, 945 gathering. About eight years ago, 
David's son Timmy was playing mini rugby in Lisburn. At the end of the season, David and a bunch of other parents and their kids got together and they took a bunch of the boys over to Glenavy GAA Club to play GAA at the end of the at the end of the season. And they've kind of been pretty much doing that ever since. Fast forward eight years later, and David is now the development officer for Glenavy GAA. There's a photo of him going to appear behind me. That's at the 75th uh, anniversary gala dinner of Glenavy GAA Club about a month ago. Dan and I had the privilege of uh, being there. The man beside David, um, to David's right, is John Horn. That's the president of the GAA in Ireland. And that cup that John Horn is presenting to David is the Francie Dune Memorial Cup. It's basically club man of the year. It's a cup when the community gathers and says, who is the person that has made the most outstanding contribution to our community this year? And at their 75th anniversary, in the presence of the president of the GAA, Glenavy GAA decided that person was David. It was the most amazing thing. We were at the table as they began. Every award, they did like little sort of, here's who this person is before the name. And uh, as they began to describe the person that was winning this cup, it became, it was amazing. I was sitting opposite David at the table. It was just class watching as he realized they were talking about him. You know, it went from kind of a, a pint and a bit of, yeah, we're doing the awards thing to, well, that's, I think, I think that's me. And by the time they finished and announced his name, he was white as a sheet and in tears, as were most of us at the table. This story that's swirling around David has involved him now being invited into all sorts of rooms and places and situations from RTE TV and radio to the Slugger O'Toole website to the Phil and Fubble West Belfast Festival talking about the future of this land. How does the son of a Presbyterian minister whose mum grew up in the Shankill Road end up the development officer for a GAA club in Glenavy? What I love most about this story is David would say he's only ever been trying to do one thing, and that's love his neighbors well. That's all he's been trying to do. Love his neighbors well. And there's been all sorts of nonsense flying around, and I love how he hasn't been distracted by opposition. He hasn't made proven anybody wrong part of the process. He's just committed to living a different narrative in Northern Ireland and modeling for many of us what it actually looks like to love our neighbors well. That's his wall. What's yours? Whenever you begin to rebuild your wall, to embrace your assignment, opposition is inevitable. Don't make it the assignment. And finally this morning, look at the end of verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. I love that. 
I love that Nehemiah's record here isn't the people worked with all their might. Or the people worked with all their smarts. The people worked with the most brilliant strategy they have ever come across. The people discovered that actually they had all sorts of hidden talent and ability that they just needed to get on the wall to discover. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says they rebuilt the wall because the people worked with all of their heart. Whenever we step into our assignment, the battle always rages over our hearts. Our hearts become the battleground. And I know in my own life, and I've observed it in others, that we can actually rebuild the wall or achieve the assignment, get the accomplishment, but sacrifice the most precious thing to us in the process, our hearts. How tragic it is that we plant a church and get involved in all of what God is doing and in the process experience opposition and criticism and allow it to infect us and actually live with a sense of cynicism and bitterness and unforgiveness. The gospel is nothing if it does not set us free. And as opposition comes, you need to understand that it will have one target, your heart. And the climate and atmosphere of what's going on in there. And you can convince yourself to stay in the wall and keep getting it built. And maybe one day even stand and look at that wall and it's all built. But something in you feels violated or constricted or damaged. I love that it says they built with all their hearts. What does it require of us to go about this work with all our hearts? To keep them free and keep them pure. I want to finish with with this. The great commission and command of Jesus to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. You know, it's the ultimate declaration of freedom. Freedom. To bless people who curse you. That's what it means to be free, right? Like when someone curses you and every impulse in you is to curse back, right? That's pretty normal. Just watch my twins. I'm like, it's just there. (laughs) We have a brilliant video of our daughter coming to tell on uh, one of the boys when she's very small. And she comes running up and she says, she explained it to Dana. Dana said, hold on, proper, proper parenting moment. She said something funny. That was to do with discipline the kids. And Dana went, hold on a second. Say that again. <laughs> and she has this moment where she goes, Moses, Moses hit me. Right? Why did he hit you? Well, I hit him twice. And then it's out of her mouth as she realizes it. And we have it on video. It's brilliant. As like her little three and a half year old self realizes she's just telling on herself. He hit her, so she hit him twice story most of our lives, right? Somebody says something about you, so you'll say something back. Somebody does something to you, so you'll go twice as far, because I'm no doormat. What if you were free to bless those who curse you? 
what that looked like when someone cuts you off on the motorway when you're in a hurry into work and rather than the proverbial whatever that looks like a blessing fell out of you just because that's who we are can you imagine what that would be like can you imagine the space that you'd feel like there is in your soul and criticism come into your life rather than feeling diminished or angry your impulse was God bless that person We need to learn how to fight for our hearts. And it looks like learning how to bless those who curse us. And listen, this is not like a trick question. It's literally that. God bless them. Pray your best prayers for those you find most difficult in your life. Pray your best prayers. God bless them financially. God bless their relationships. God bless their family. God, help them to find life and hope and fullness. Not so they'll discover that they're idiots. That's not real blessing. What would it look like for you to learn how to bless those that opposed you and cursed you and tried to harm you? I think it would look like freedom. And I think our whole society would be different if we could learn how to operate that way. And it is as simple as that. It's hard mind you to just find ourselves in a posture of blessing particularly when opposition comes if you want to step into this thing called the story of God the mission of God you need to understand that opposition is inevitable you need to never ever ever make opposition your assignment and you need to learn how to fight for your heart And that looks like blessing those who curse us. If you're able, will you stand? I want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Come and rest upon us, I pray. Father, I pray for those of us in the room this morning who are in the midst of a battle. Mentally, emotionally, physically. Holy Spirit, would you come and bring rest and refreshment. And Lord, would you lead us, help us to figure out how to live truly free lives. I want you to um, just bring to your mind now the person or people that you find it most difficult to think affectionately towards in your life. Maybe somebody who's insulted you in the past. Maybe somebody who said something about your family, your people, whatever. And I want you just, in a couple of moments we have here now, to begin to pray blessing upon them.
Just begin to bless them. God, bless that person. Fill their life with your goodness. Bless their finances. Bless the work of their hands. Just begin to bless them. God, would you show your kindness towards them? Bless them, O God, we pray. Bless them, O God, we pray. And Lord, I pray as we go into our week that you would remind us of this moment repeatedly when our impulse is to insult, when our reaction is to defend. Holy Spirit, would you lead us in blessing? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.